This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And if you've listened to this show in the last four or five months, you know where I'm recording the show from. I'm recording the show from my bedroom, where I'm going to be recording a lot of shows for the indefinite future. Speaking of shows, this show is an interview with Gary Liu. He is the CEO of the South China Morning Post. It is a Hong Kong-based newspaper that is now owned by Alibaba, which is interesting. And Gary is an interesting guy with an interesting background. He is not a newspaper veteran. He's someone who comes out of tech. He worked at companies like Google and Spotify before this job. This is a particularly interesting time to hear from him, given what's happening in Hong Kong right now. The short version of that is China has now passed draconian new rules that govern the internet and speech in Hong Kong. This may force a lot of Western companies to either give in to those demands or leave Hong Kong altogether. This is happening as I record this. One bit of background, we recorded this conversation back in early June as part of the Collision Conference. So back then we knew these rules were coming, but we didn't know exactly how they'd play out. And we still don't, which is something you're going to hear Gary talk about repeatedly during this conversation. There's a lot of uncertainty about what's to come, but we're all used to that at this point in 2020. Speaking of what's to come, we're now three episodes into our new season of Land of the Giants, which covers the rise of Netflix. And if you like this podcast, you will like that one, too. I guarantee it. You can get it wherever you find fine podcasts just like this one. Okay, on to the show. Gary Liu, nice to see you. I'm not even seeing you. I'm just talking to you. But nice to hear from you again. Yeah, good to hear your voice. You are CEO of the South China Morning Post. I have many questions for you, but in case people in the audience don't know what the South China Morning Post is, do you want to give the the one-minute summary of what the publication is? Sure, we can do it even in less time than that. Great. Uh, the Post is a relatively old news organization that has always been based out of Hong Kong. We've been around for nearly 117 years, always as a broadsheet, now expanding into a bunch of digital formats. And for, I would say, well over a century at this point, it's been the English language newspaper record for the city of Hong Kong. And over the course of the last several years, increasingly, uh, we have become a window into China for the entire world. It's like you've given that summary a couple different times before. A few times, a few times. Uh, The South China Morning Post is now owned by Alibaba, who I think everyone in our audience knows who Alibaba is. When did they buy it? I believe it was April of 2016 was when the deal was closed, so just over four years. And then you were brought in when to run the, run the company? 
Uh, about eight months after that. So I joined January of 2017. So you, you do not have a traditional publishing background. Uh, you were CEO of uh, Dig, uh, which I think some people will re- remember as sort of a, an interesting sort of web 2.0, I guess, crowd aggregator, right? Still around. Um, and it's, it's kind of a different format now prior to that. Yeah, very Spotify and Google. How were you brought to the post and, and why take that job? The hell is actually quite boring. They were looking for a new CEO that had spent a good amount of time at the intersection of media and technology. And as companies do, they hired a an executive search firm who somehow found me. Uh, I I always say that they were they were scraping the bottom of the barrel, and I actually do believe that. Um, so that's the how that they found me. Uh, the reason why I moved to Hong Kong to take the job is because of how unique it is. I mean, this is a an old newspaper that. Uh, clearly needed to to go through transformation, but had an incredible brand, or has an incredible brand, uh, and, and and an incredible owner now. And by incredible, I mean someone who is willing to actually invest in bridging this gap between traditional print and um, sustainable uh, digital media. And it also came at a moment where it was clear, certainly at least to me, that the story of China was only going to get more and more relevant for every corner of the world uh, and more and more impactful. And so that's why I, I moved from New York to Hong Kong to take on the challenge. Boy, there's so much to unpack. Um, the, the idea of having a, 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 a billionaire buy a storied but troubled publication is one we've seen now played out multiple times in the U.S., so it seems like this that's similar in some ways. Uh, a big difference, right, is is when Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, Amazon.com right. didn't buy it, Mark Benioff bought Time, uh, Salesforce didn't buy it, Loreen Powell Jobs bought The Atlantic, not, the, not a corporate entity. What kind of questions and concerns did you have about the fact that this is owned by a giant uh, Chinese e-commerce company? I had plenty of questions. I did not know Alibaba as an entity. I mean, I, of course, knew about the company and, and mm-hmm. the entire ethos around the company that has been widely documented. Uh, but I had never met uh, Jack Ma or Joe Tsai before, or actually any Alibaba executives when I started the process for this job. And so I didn't know them as human beings. I didn't know why Alibaba would buy a newspaper. I did not know what their plans were for the newspaper. But I was curious, just like many people were. And so I met with them and spent a good amount of time, especially with Joe Tsai, who is the chairman of the Post, uh, and probably more well-known in the United States now as the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, mm-hmm. and uh, spent hours discussing with him what he believed about news, about whether it is editorial independence or the future sustainability of our industry, and what he believed for the South China Morning Post. Why take on a distressed asset, honestly, or at the very least, a lot of people would have considered a distressed asset at a time where no one was putting money into traditional media, uh, or very few people were, um, and and what the hopes were for a news organization that was this old, that the rest of the world didn't really know that well, but it, it certainly seemed like if the owners had aspiration for the brand. So all of those questions were asked, and at the end of the day, um, I bought into their vision, which was that the story of China needs to be uh, told by a news organization that has both the intimacy and the the objectivity to actually tell it properly. And they believe the South China Morning Post was that news organization and with an infusion of cash, um, some new talent that this organization, this, this news company could be relevant to the world. 
So I get the I get the argument for why someone would be interested in owning the South China Morning Post, why someone would make the argument the South China Morning Post is important for China, important for the world. But that's different than saying why Alibaba wants to own that company. So could, what, what's your understanding of why Alibaba itself wants to own a newspaper? Now, I, I think a lot of it had to do with Joe Tsai. Uh, Joe has lived in Hong Kong for 20-plus years um, as a pretty proud resident of Hong Kong um, and knows the Post, knows the Post history over the course of those 20-plus years, relied on the Post heavily throughout his career, I think. Um, but he, he loves the Post. He can talk about the editors and the, the, the columnists um, and the positions of the newspaper over uh, his two-plus decades in Hong Kong. And he really is passionate about media. And so I do think that the, the Alibaba acquisition of the Post had a lot to do with Joe and, and, and Joe really wanting to, to work on changing a news organization that has meant a lot to him. Okay, I mean, we'll come back to it. I just want to point out that, you know, Joe also likes the Brooklyn Nets, but he bought the Nets. He didn't, he didn't buy it through Alibaba. That's fair. Um, yeah. This is a weird, and it would be a weird and interesting time to talk to you uh, under any circumstance. Uh, I'm talking to you on the Monday after a weekend of riots and protests and police violence in America. Um, a lot of documented violence directed at journalists. Mm-hmm. And I woke up thinking, oh, I really am interested in Gary's perspective on this, given that the South China Morning Post uh, has done a ton of coverage of violent protests and, and uh, outbreaks of violence between police and protesters over the last year plus in Hong Kong. I'm curious, what, what are you looking at the coverage of, of, of what's been going on in the U.S. the last three days or so? three evenings. Are there things that look familiar to you? Or are there things that look wholly different from the environment that your reporters and editors have been covering? It's very familiar. And it's unfortunately familiar because we've seen how uh, these kinds of clashes and, and, and the engagements that we've seen on the streets of Hong Kong over the course of the last um, year has, I think, foundationally changed the city. I Honestly, I wouldn't call it progress. Uh, and it has polarized the society here in Hong Kong to the point a very real fracture, uh, and I'm not sure what recovery uh, and revival really looks like. At the very least, that, that that social fabric seems to have been torn. So yes, the scenes on the streets, whether it's in Minnesota or New York or Los Angeles or Atlanta or any other of the many cities um, over the course of the last few days have been all too familiar. There are, I think, a few differences. Uh, I think one of the most interesting differences that I've noticed is that Police forces in one city act very differently than police forces in another. And Hong Kong is one city. It is one Mm -hmm. police force. So irregardless of which neighborhood these clashes um, have happened in, and and it's been spread out all across Hong Kong, um, the the, the police tactics and the police response has been singular, Uh, whereas in the United States, of course, it's not. And so it is, it is going to be increasingly interesting over the coming days and weeks to see how the situation escalates or de-escalates from one place to another based on that engagement uh, or the differences in engagement between protester and, um, and policing force. There was a period last fall when Americans were briefly paying attention to what was going on in Hong Kong and uh, the dynamic between Hong Kong and China. This was basically because of the NBA uh, and comments uh, uh, one of the NBA uh, managers had had made, uh, the Houston Rockets manager had made, uh, supporting uh, the Hong Kong protesters. 
I asked you to sum up your 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 newspaper in a minute. Is is there is there a way to explain in a minute the the main fault line of the clash between uh, people in Hong Kong and in China? And the no, government in China. There's no, no way. There is there it, is no way. I, I is and no this way. is one of the things you would hear a lot last fall from a lot of NBA players. Um this is too complicated. I'm trying to understand what's going on. Uh and then you'd have other folks saying, No, no, it's not that complicated. People in Hong Kong want want to want a right of self determination. People say, No, it's not really that clear. Are there any parallels to that that a US or international audience would, would be able to get their head around? I don't think so. I certainly haven't found one as an American living here in Hong Kong and trying really hard to explain to my peers and friends uh, back home what this civil distrust um, and the civic breakdown, like why it has happened. I haven't found a parallel. Remember, it is 160 years, 160 plus years of uh, this rock, very, very small rock uh, that has been occupied by multiple different forces. And 20 some years ago, um, having been returned from British colonialism back to Chinese rule, and uh, honestly, a population of people in Hong Kong that are uh, some of the most aspirational people that I've ever met, uh, who have, through you know, never having had honestly been able to uh, govern by themselves, have still yet built not only a culture but a city that it, that is one of the most prosperous in the world. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's all of that. So there, there's so many different layers and, and, you know, you can't cut this conflict by generation. You can't cut it by socioeconomic status. You can't cut it by uh, along, you know, uh, nationalities. It really is. It's, it's a personal experience with the city and how you interpret the identity of Hong Kong. It's past, it's present, and it's in the hope for its future that leads people to this conflict. We're recording this on June 1st. I don't think people will hear this conversation until June 22nd. There is new, I don't know what's the right word to, to describe it. There's new new rules coming from China about uh, the way it's going to manage Hong Kong. We, you and I talked a couple days ago and you said, we just don't know what's going to happen. Um, we certainly won't know what will happen by late June. But what are you thinking about? How is the new, how are the new orders going to affect your job um, in, in running a paper in Hong Kong? Well, I, I don't expect that it will change the way that we run our news organization, certainly not in the short to midterm. I, I think the factual context for this national security law is very, very important because I think if you only read headlines, uh, it looks like something completely different than it, than it is, than it actually is. Hong Kong is ruled by a, a mini constitution known as the basic law. It's very unique to the city of Hong Kong. Um, and in the basic law, which was a document that defined how Hong Kong was going to be for at least 50 years after the 1997 handover, uh, in, that, in that basic law, there is a, um, a determination that uh, a national security law has to be implemented here in Hong Kong, which makes sense. Every country or most countries have national security laws and Hong Kong being such an important city to China, you would expect that a national security law would cover the city. Uh, would define what secession and sedition looks like in the city. Now, Hong Kong and its government and its people were supposed to pass their own version of the national security law within a few years of the handover, and they never did. It got to a point in 2003 where um, a, a you know, bill was making its way through the, the legislative council, the legislature here in Hong Kong, and 500,000 people protested against it, and the government dropped it. 
And it was never, that conversation was effectively never revived. As of right now, the legislature here in Hong Kong is non-effective. Um, it is so polarized that effectively no bill uh, can be passed into law here in Hong Kong. And I think because of seeing that, Beijing has decided that they're going to completely skirt around the normal procedure, the expected procedure of you know, the promise of letting Hong Kong govern itself in this specific case and, and, uh, and defining its own law uh, for, for uh, national security. And instead, they have decided to impart uh, a national security law. Now, the reason why I said um, we're not sure what's really going to happen is because the language of the law has yet to be drafted. What happened uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks was that during uh, China's most important annual political meeting, their, the national, um, the MPC, right, the governing body of China, got together and they stated, "We are going to pass a resolution." that says we can start working on the language for this national security law for Hong Kong. And once it's done, we're going to insert it into an annex of the basic law, and then suddenly it is going to be law. We don't expect the language for that law to be available for review until end of June at the earliest, I would say. And then even after that, the language itself will likely be tweaked and changed. When it does finally become law, because this is a common law jurisdiction here in Hong Kong, we have to see how it's actually uh, played out in the courts. Are there going to be uh, the same judges that are sitting on the final court of appeals, effectively the Supreme Court here in Hong Kong? Are those the same judges that are going to determine if an act or an activity is seditious? Uh, or is there going to be a separate uh, judicial body set up right. like so these there are potentially- is in- uh, these are potentially enormously far-reaching uh, decisions and outcomes, but you won't know about them for some time. And in the meantime, you're yes. imagining much protest. better summary, Peter. <laughs> yes. but, but you're imagining in, in the meantime, there's going to be significant protest. There will be. There will be a continuation of uh, the protest movement from last year, and it will likely I mean, escalate over the course of the next few weeks because there are some major anniversaries coming up, including the one-year anniversary of the start of the protest last year in June. Then there is, uh, well, I mean, June 4th is this week, which is Tiananmen. And this is going to be the first year in 30 years that there is no public rally marking the anniversary of Tiananmen. The reason the government has given is because uh, there's been a new local cluster of COVID-19. And right now, the social distancing laws in Hong Kong, the regulations have not been lifted. And therefore, these mass gatherings are technically illegal for COVID-19. But read between the lines there. And then, of course, July 1st is, uh, is the handover day for Hong Kong. It's the, it's the day that's marked every single year that's marked the return of Hong Kong to, to uh, Chinese jurisdiction. So all of those anniversaries generally are, are, you know, are days of protest or days of rally movement. We talked at, a, at an event a, a few weeks ago when you were mentioning sort of the effect of covering these protests where there's real violence involved for more than a year now has, has had on the actual journalists who work for you. Can you describe some of that and sort of what you guys are doing to support that team? Yeah, it's been um, it's been very real impact of the newsroom, not only operationally but uh, mentally for our journalists. Hong Kong's not a city that's used to this kind of upheaval, and so uh, the majority of journalists in our newsroom, whether they are local Hong Kongers or a lot of the foreign correspondents that have come and that come and, and work for us from headquarters, have not been in uh, crisis and conflict zones before. 
Um, and this escalated very quickly starting from last June. And so very quickly, we had to train the newsroom on how to report in crisis. We had to train them on um, expected movements of police forces and police lines. Uh, we had to train them on where to situate themselves between police and protesters. Uh, we had to train them on all the signals of when conflict is going to escalate, on what to do when tear gas is fired. So this is all all sort of tactical stuff. If if gas is fired, behave this way. That's right. If you see police in this formation, react that way. And this is all new for us. Even mm-hmm. buying the equipment and sourcing the equipment necessary, the safety equipment for our journalists was new. And then operationally, uh, we had to rota in a completely different way, right? Because our journalists, a lot of the, the, the gung-ho young journalists want to be out there every single day. They want to observe what's going event, on, mark this moment news, in the street. Yeah. Yep, and and it's and it wears them down. And so, you know, new operational procedures to force people off of the streets, not on because everyone wanted to go, but force them off of the streets to give them weekends and days of respite, but also give them time to actually process. Um, we had to make sure that our our you know mental health lines were open, and there were additional resources within the organization for people who needed it. Uh, We saw early symptoms of PTSD in our newsroom. Loud noises in the newsroom would make people flinch in a completely different way. And of course, at the end of the day, what's hardest is uh, is making sure that the reporting still remained objective. It's very, very hard to be in those situations even for a couple of hours, not to mention weeks on end, and not have emotion about it. Uh, and we had to figure out how to make sure that our journalists did not bring that emotion back into their reporting, how to make sure our editors still uh, published articles that were objective. I think to some people in the audience, what you just said makes perfect sense about stripping the emotion out of your reporting. And a lot would say, well, if you're there and you're a human and you have feelings, that should inform your writing. To pretend otherwise doesn't make any sense. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of the idea of, of taking emotion out of reporting and, and how you do that? I think this is the conviction of a newsroom like ours that uh, that news is meant to be impartial fact. It's not meant to have the journalists' emotions or personal opinions interlaced. Uh, this has been the conviction of the newsroom for 117 years and it remains so. Where those emotions can be expressed, we did do behind-the-scenes opinion pieces where journalists talked about their experience on the street, spending time with both the police force as well as with protesters. Opinion pieces, yes, absolutely. The emotion, the experience, uh, describing things the way that they were seen with your own personal opinion. I mean, that, that's, that's the role of the op-eds page. But that separation for us is sacrament. I'm going to break up this conversation for just a minute so we can hear from a sponsor. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This week on The Gray Area. Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe? What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, aliens are real? Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn? Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House. And that's one of those cases that is still weird. (laughs) 
That's This Week on the Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. How did the experience you went through last year covering protests inform the way that, that your team has been covering the pandemic? Uh, Hong Kong has fared, as have many uh, Asian countries and cities, uh, fared much better than, than the U.S. and other parts of the world. But there's still stress. There's still um, all kinds of social distancing rules. How does that affect your business or how has it affected your business? It wasn't so much the protest reporting that uh, instructed our COVID-19 reporting. Uh, it, it was actually the fact that many people in our newsroom experienced SARS in 2003. And then since SARS, mm-hmm. there's been multiple different versions of the bird flu. And there was MERS as well and swine flu. And so we've actually had processes uh, in place to identify epidemics in and around southern China uh, for many, many years. Their protocols uh, and this, of course, institutional memory about how to keep our reporters safe but get the story right. So actually, in uh, late December, when we heard rumors that there was a mysterious pneumonia that uh, was circulating around Wuhan, might have been circulating around Wuhan, we had already sent our reporters in mainland China to Wuhan. Uh, by early January, by I think it was January 3rd or 4th, we'd already sent out a uh, newsroom-wide email talking about pneumonia and talking about reporting safety around around this uh, this case. And by the end of the first week of January, internally, we'd already stated that this was likely to be the next SARS. Uh, and so safety precautions went into play. About a day before Wuhan was locked down, all of our journalists came out of the city. Uh, we stopped letting our journalists report directly from inside of hospitals anywhere in the world by late January. And so I think it really was the institutional memory, the pattern recognition from SARS and MERS and swine flu and and avian flu that allowed us to report on this so quickly and not have blind spots in either the operating side or the actual journalistic side. We haven't actually talked about the, the business of the South China Morning Post. As you know, journalism around the world is is, is under threat uh, for multiple reasons, but uh, economic reasons are a major one. Um, mm-hmm. And in the U.S., you're seeing lots of publications founder um, and flounder, and they're trying to figure out a working business model. Many of them are trying belatedly to move from an ad-based model to a subscription-based model. A few have serious success. Uh, most aren't. How does the South China Morning Post make the majority of its revenue today? Advertising. And yes, it should set off alarm bells. Um, We've had those alarm bells ringing in our ears for years. And we are one of those who's late to the subscription or reader revenue game. And and, and we recognize that. So the struggles that you mentioned that many American news organizations and many around the world are facing today, uh, we know very, very acutely. So is it a profitable uh, business today? As of right now, it is not. So Alibaba is subsidizing it. What's your sense of sort of how long you can expect? How long will Alibaba allow you to run uh, as, a, as a loss-making business? I actually have no idea what that number is for them, uh, but we know internally what our goals are. Um, we can't stay an investment project for any owner um, because, frankly, at the end of the day, this has to be a sustainable business. We have to be able to stand up on, on our two own feet. And, and, and the longer we wait to relearn how to properly make money in this new age, the more our muscles atrophy. So we have a very, very clear plan forward. Um, And COVID-19, it hasn't really changed that. It has accelerated it to some degree. So reader revenue, being able to to have fair exchange directly with users is coming. Uh, It's been on the roadmap from the very beginning for us. And by beginning, I mean three and a half years ago when I arrived. 
it's I think COVID nineteen has just accelerated it by by months, not by years. So the, I can access the full content of the paper today free online, correct? Yes, today you can. And I'm assuming at some point you will stop that and ask me to start paying or you'll offer me a limited number of stories. When, when does that kick in and how do you sort of, how do you, after, especially after watching a lot of uh, publications you know, really struggle with this, how do you imagine right. training your readers who've been used to getting your stuff for free to actually giving you money? We have to communicate the value of our reporting. And I think that... If there is a slight advantage to being late is that uh, we've seen people succeed and we've seen people fail. And a lot of those lessons are being codified for our own path to reader revenue. What makes the post, what makes the South China Morning Post unique is that um, we cover a, a niche topic that is extremely relevant to a large group of people. And I know that that sounds like, uh, I mean, it, it sounds like a contrarian statement. It sounds weird, odd, but it is true. China is, or at the very least, access to an understanding of China is tradable information. Uh, China is not a, a, an open information system. It is very much closed, and it's only going to get more closed over the next few years. So um, our advantage of not only knowing China well, but being able to report on China, even as it collapses on itself and in, in, uh, in information freedoms, um, that's an advantage for us. That's tradable data. Uh, that's tradable content. And so if we can package it correctly and explain that to our readers uh, all over the world, uh, there is very, very real value there. So we are not like a normal general interest and not like a normal local news organization uh, because it's a very specific expertise that many, many people in the, around the world would be willing to pay for. You're basically making a sort of Wall Street Journal pitch, right? This is something that, that can help you. You have a, a, a business reason uh, to seek this knowledge out. Some of it's available at other places, but not to the, the degree, not to the to the breadth. Um, is that a fair sort of a uh, pitch? It is fair, although it extends beyond business, um, academia and, and, and diplomacy. Yes, it extends beyond business. So you've seen that the time, the New York Times has sort of been the most successful from what we can tell. Uh, the, the journal has, has had a paywall for a very long time, but the Times, is, in terms of the recent... Recent publications that have done this, the Times is the one that's really had notable success in switching sort of the the source of the revenue from advertisers to to readers. Is there something that they did that you think is replicable, or is that sort of a, a very specific case? The Times is different, and it's different primarily for two reasons. The first is its brand, arguably the most recognizable news brand in the world, um, and the second is. It's ubiquity, right? It's not just this brand ubiquity; it's distribution ubiquity that it's been that has been built up over many, many years. And those two things together, they can tell a very unique story. So it is different. But I think what is replicable is the fact that they identified exactly what their value statement was going to be for their readers. Uh, and it's and by the way, it's not the same value statement for every single reader. They were able to build their funnel. Uh, very scientifically. And so that experience uh, and that learning, I, we can carry over to the post. So n no, we don't expect to, we don't expect to become the times. We don't expect to have the kind of success that, that uh, they've seen over the last few years, at least not right away. Uh, but there are definitely le lessons we can learn from them. You talked about China collapsing in on itself in terms of press freedom, um, sort of well-documented sort of China's restrictions on, on press freedom. You're in a weird spot where you're part of China, but you're not quite part of China. You're also now owned. You have a corporate owner that has its own ties to China. 
I don't know how you could possibly answer this, but but where, if anywhere, do you feel sort of most hemmed in in terms of your ability to report or communicate effectively? Uh, actually, our restriction is the same restriction as uh, any global news organization that's trying to report on China. It's access to information. Uh, beyond that, we're not hemmed in in any additional way or any unique way. Uh, obviously, here in Hong Kong, um, you know, press freedoms are enshrined in, in this mini constitution that I spoke about earlier. Uh, and we expect that to still be the case going forward. And that allows us actually to report everything we see and whatever we want to write. Our owners over the course of the last four years have not in any way, shape or form impinged on our ability to report. In fact, they've invested heavily in that ability to report everything we see. And I also expect that to continue. So what we are concerned about is the fact that sources are drying up within China, uh, that it is increasingly harder and harder to get reporters in and out of China, out of mainland. And I, I don't like talking about it as an advantage because this general constricting media environment in China is not good for China, nor is it good for the world. But it is an advantage because we have always had experience with that. We have never reported on a democratic China. Um, and so for 117 years, we've dealt with undulating uh, freedoms in getting to information and bringing it out of China. We have a very, very large core of reporters that are already in China that are PRC nationals uh, and are able to get to information sources that other global news organizations cannot. And uh, again, we have the, the intimacy, but also the press freedoms in Hong Kong to be able to properly parse that and show that to the rest of the world. So I am still quite confident in the postability and uh, over the course of the next many years to report on on China's impact on the world. There's a lot of criticism, and I'm, I know you've seen it, uh, that, that Alibaba's uh, ownership of, of your paper is, is sort of an attempt by Alibaba and sort of by extension China to sort of project soft power, right? To, to sort of use the publication to sort of present a certain kind of image uh, to the world. And, and you, I don't think you were directly alluding to this, but you said at the beginning of our conversation it was important for Jack Ma and Josiah to have this because they wanted to project information and, and ideas about China to the world that weren't necessarily getting them. Is there any kind of limitation that you feel uh, or you feel your editors feel in terms of ways you want to present a story about China or Hong Kong? No, there really isn't. Um, certainly not in the four years that they've, that they've owned the paper. Uh, yeah, I, I think that there were, there were considerable concerns when Alibaba bought the news organization. And I fully understand that. I think anyone at the Post who has seen the history of the Post and seen the history of news organizations across Asia uh, can understand that. But the proof has to be in the pudding. And over those last four years, the, the South China Morning Post reporting has been foundational to people's understanding of China. There has not been any attempt to make the Post a pro-China news organization. Uh, we don't see ourselves as a vehicle to project China's soft power at all. Uh, and if you've met anyone in our newsroom, and I do hope that people have the chance to, you'll, you'll, you'll realize the conviction of our editors and our journalists. And you also realize that these are folks that uh, are not going to be told what to do. Uh, and, and, and that's why I'm so confident is because I work with them every single day and I see how hard they strive to find and express the truth that's happening in this part of the world. What's the biggest misconception when you talk to someone from the U.S. about China today? Um, I think people are vaguely aware where China is. They're certainly aware of uh, uh, a little bit more of the geography now than they would have been a few months ago. Uh, mm -hmm. They're aware that 
President Trump uh, often is, it seems to be a battle in, with China, but the lines of that battle are, are frequently redrawn. And that, but the criticism of China is not solely uh, partisan. Um, there's a lot of folks on the left who have, have concerns about China. There's a lot of concerns from the tech industry about China. But it's all sort of vague and sort of hard to articulate, I think, in many cases. And you get things like the discussion we had earlier, where you say, well, it's, it's complicated and we can't really explain it quickly. Is there one, it's a long preamble, is there one major misconception <laughs> that you think you could clear up Oh, I don't know I can, that I can clear it up, but there is one major misconception, which is that China is a monolith, uh, that there is a, there is a you know, communist party of China and there's one supreme leader, Mr. Xi Jinping, and everything he says goes and everyone just falls in line. Uh, that is the big misconception. China is such a huge country, enormous population with multitudes of different peoples and languages and, uh, and obviously opinions. Um, and, and, and so this country is so fascinating to observe and to study and to report on because it's not a monolith. And even the Communist Party itself, um, even though they want to project like if they are a singular entity because that is uh, in, in many ways their source of power, that's not true. There is discord and discontent and arguments within the party itself. It's, it's not often brought to light and only very, very good reporting oftentimes can bring it to light. But you must know that it exists. Uh, and you can see signals and shadows of that uh, from time to time. And again, that, that's what's so interesting about reading the tea leaves when it comes to the party and how internal politics works. And then the, the internet of China, again, it's seen as a monolith, especially with the NBA stuff. It felt like if there was one voice coming out of China. And, and by the way, a huge misconception about that one voice, which is not even true. There were many, many voices coming out of the Chinese internet about the NBA situation. But the misconception was that this one voice was government dictated. But in the NBA scenario specifically, it was not. It was, it was a groundswell of, um, of digital nationalism. That's something that we have been observing over the last few years. And it's actually something that the government can't even control. And the government at times is concerned about uh, because this broadcast, the, the broadcast ability of the internet, as restricted as it is in China, actually does allow the people to have a very, very loud and controlling voice um, that is not easily dictated by single governance. So all of those things make this country enormously interesting. Uh, and also it just it accentuates the impact that it's going to have on the world. Do you find yourself getting that question about America, given that you are an American citizen? Uh, I do. From, from I your do. coworkers, yeah. What's oh, what's the what's the, what's 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 your what's your version of the reverse uh, uh, explainer? What's the it, thing you the have to explain about that, America? Yeah, it, it is on the political side. It is that uh, all Republicans think one way and all Democrats think one way because that's how it is portrayed in global media. It's that there is a Republican point of view and a Democratic point of view, and those things are 100% at odds with one another and. Uh, America has neatly sliced itself between the two parties. And so I, I, I do, I try to spend a lot of time talking about how big America is and how different people on the coasts are and, and uh, all the different states and, and, and how government actually works in the United States and how important the, 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 you know, the state house is and the local government. Uh, I think this is, going back to what we were saying earlier, one really interesting thing about this, the, the current protest movement in the United States is that police forces, they are reacting differently. And it is a great example to show people around the world that the United States is not singular. So it, it is, it's the same analogy. It's the same 
uh, misunderstanding because it's just much easier to paint people with broad strokes. Gary, this is a fascinating discussion. We could do another 45 minutes easily, but we're going to leave it here. Hopefully I'll get to see you in person sooner or later, although I don't know when I'm getting on a plane anytime soon. Um, Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the conversation, Peter. Thanks, man. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing this show to you for free. Thanks to the excellent people who help make this podcast possible. I hope you're well. I hope you're safe. And I'm glad to tell you we've got another episode of Recode Media coming to you next week. Stay tuned. We'll see you soon.